The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Grab your coffee. We're going to be talking about exonerating the innocent this morning. This is part two of our 2013 series on the gift of exoneration. So what do you think? Is it better to set 10 guilty men free than to convict just one who's innocent? Various combinations of those words have been said for centuries, but we cringe every time there's a new report of an individual serving time in prison for a crime he or she didn't commit. At the same time, when we hear of a person getting arrested, well, most of us believe they're guilty. There are a number of contributing factors to cases ultimately exonerated. The attorneys and students who staff the project of the Innocence Project across the nation certainly have an uphill battle. And so I'm pleased to introduce to you my guest today, Michael Semanchik. Am I pronouncing your name right, Mike? Semanchik, but... Semanchik, I'm sorry. Semanchik. Mike, error. Mike is a staff attorney at the California Innocence Project, or CIP. He's been with CIP since 2010. You might recognize his name because Mike was instrumental in exonerating uh, famous NFL linebacker, I can't say it, linebacker Brian Banks in 2012. And as a result, the California Lawyer Magazine named Michael Attorney of the Year for 2013. What an honor. Uh, besides, yeah, what an honor. Besides litigating cases of innocence, Michael supervises four clinic students. He manages marketing in office volunteering and the events at CIP. Mike not only talks the talk, but he walks the walk. This year, Mike and two other attorneys from CIP walked, guess where, from San Diego to Sacramento. That's a very long way. It's the entire state of California to deliver clemency petitions to California's Governor Brown to protest the incarceration of 12 innocent inmates. So please call in today if you have a specific question about innocence claims or how to pursue one or anything about the Innocence Project that Mike can answer. It's a pleasure to have you join the show, Mike. Thank you for having me. Well, um, so how did you – what's been your career path? Where did you go to law uh, school and – yeah, the way I kind of fell into the Innocence Project, I was um, I was in law school at California Western School of Law uh, here in San Diego, and it was probably the second week of school. I was sitting in a uh, have uh, lunchtime events, and this particular day they had an event where a guy named Timothy Atkins was going to be addressing the school, um, and so I went and I sat down in the thing, and uh, Tim Atkins had had spent 23 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. 
Uh, and he had just recently been exonerated by the California Innocence Project. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I was sitting there kind of listening to his story, and I thought, this is definitely something I want to do. You know, I've only been in law school for three weeks, but um, <laughs> this is something I want to do. So wow. I applied to the Innocence Project uh, later that year. I was accepted as a, uh, a clinic student um, in 2008, and I worked for a year uh, in the project investigating cases. Uh, At the end of that, I spent uh, a couple months at the California Attorney General's office and then uh, two semesters at the San Diego Public Defender uh, before I came back uh, to work at the California Innocence Project again. Uh, And when I got bar results, uh, you know, I was lucky enough that our director uh, had found some, was able to come up with some money in a grant, and I got hired from there, and it's been uh, off to the races since. So. Wow, that's that's really uh, an unusual career path, actually. Uh, most people spend um, a number of years in private practice before they get involved. So that's really cool. Right. So, so you you really captured that vision early, and uh, so and now, how long have you been back with CIP? Uh, so I started back in 2010. So three years now. I've okay. been back. In, I've been at the Innocence Project. Very cool. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so tell me a little bit about what what's the process. How do you? Yeah, and so yeah. you know from the very beginning, um, you know CIP has always been. As soon as we opened our doors, the mail started flowing. Uh, our office has yeah. been open since uh, 1999, uh, and every year we get about 2,000 requests for assistance. So um, you know we have. Uh, a couple mail bins in the back right now that are pretty full, um, where it's people writing in asking for our help. Uh, and so the process is we have um, some students that review the cases initially, and kind of figure out where are the where, which are the of the 2,000 cases, which are the ones that um, you know that have strong uh, claims of factual innocence. You know, we don't care if somebody's mad about their sentence or uh, maybe they're claiming legal innocence and not factual innocence, whereas, you know, like legal innocence being something like, um, you know, I was there and, yeah, I did it, but uh, I was acting in self-defense. That's typically Mm -hmm. not a case we would take. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're screening out a lot of the cases. We take that 2,000 and uh, we whittle it down to uh, probably around 50 or 100 cases that we uh, push on to 12 clinic students. The clinic students are getting five credits a semester for two semesters, and they investigate their uh, caseloads. So each, each of the 12 students, actually this year we have 13, um, they get about 10 cases each. Uh, some are carried over from previous years. Some are the brand-new cases. And they investigate the cases and try to come up with um, some evidence that the person might not have done it. So we're always trying to answer two questions. Number one, are they innocent? Because as an innocence project, we can't. Uh, represent somebody unless we believe that they're innocent. And number right. two, can we prove it? Um, right. If the student comes up with, if, if they can answer both of those questions, um, then, you know, they they work with the attorney to draft up the legal documents to uh, get the person out of prison. And then we file and, you know, hopefully uh, we get a hearing, we get back in court, and then we litigate um you know, with the with the prosecution, and you know, sometimes we get we get uh, people exonerated. So that's how it works. Well, and the way you tell it, Mike, it sounds simple, but it's very long and very complicated, isn't it? Right, right. That whole process that I just explained uh, takes anywhere from two to four years. I mean, we typically tell people 
that if they are uh, incarcerated and they're only going to be in prison for, you know, two or three years sentence, um, that by the time that we would actually start reviewing their case, they're probably going to be released on parole. So, um, you know, we're really focused on the cases that um, the person is going to be incarcerated for a pretty lengthy sentence. Um, so most of our cases are, you know, murder cases or, you know, we get a lot of um, three strikes cases here in California or, um, you know, some pretty hefty sentences that come with it. Right. So, okay, so the students review the cases, and I'm assuming that they're doing that under um, – your or another attorney's supervision. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we each of us there's there's four uh, staff attorneys here, and we're each supervising a number of students uh, on on their cases and kind of giving them direction uh, and telling them, you know, like this is uh, a good avenue for your investigation. This might not be, and you know, they report back to us. We actually meet with the students um, weekly and kind of give them sort of guide them in uh, in how to handle their cases. But they are. Um, the students' cases. I mean, I, I tell my students from the very beginning that, you know, this is your case. You know, you're the expert on this case. Um, I'm, I'm supervising four of the students. Each have 10 cases. I can't be the expert on 40 cases. And mm-hmm. so, you mm-hmm. know, they are the expert on the case. So. Okay. And at what level of law school are, are these students? Uh, most of them are in their second year, and then okay. um, we do allow third-year students to, to come in as well. We don't allow first-years. You know, first-year students in law school have a, uh, a pretty set schedule. So at, at the about halfway through, actually next month, we'll, we will have like a meeting where we'll tell the uh, the first-year law students, hey, you know, the um, this is you know we're the California Innocence Project. If you want to get involved, then here's how you apply for your second year. Um, mm-hmm. Typically, the majority of the students that that do work in our and in our clinic students are second years. And do you um, do they have to actually be approved to be part of the project, or can anybody that wants to be involved get involved? Um, well, the first criteria is they have to go to California Western. Um, okay. Just because the the uh, the way the program is set up, um, the the students, the clinic students, actually get credit. Um, so they get five credits in the fall and five credits in the spring term. Uh, so that's criteria number one. Number two is that, you know, we do get a number of um, Cal Western students that are interested in participating in the California Innocence Project. So we do have a select, uh, a pretty selective process. We take them through an interview. Uh, we actually have them do a, uh, a mock investigation to uh, kind of, for them to show us that they are really serious about it. And the investigation is, uh, it's typically pretty fun. We have them investigate us. So I, every year in uh, February, I have some people that are, you know, s- you know, staking me out or sitting outside my apartment <laughs> taking pictures of me. Um, That's funny. Can, but it's it's a great way to uh, to figure out who are the good students that are truthfully, um, you know, 100% interested in the cause. So. Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, it it sounds like, I mean, at first blush, when you hear five credits for each semester, that's a lot. But you're, they earn that those five credits. They're working a lot. Oh yes, uh, yeah. we we require them to put in twenty hours a week um, yeah. in in the office, and and you know, I I would guess that most of the students. Are putting in uh, upwards of thirty or forty hours. I mean, I, when I was a student, forty hours was 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 pretty was you know for the most part what I was doing. You know, and every weekend you're taking trips all over California, doing prison visits, and going up to try and track down witnesses and 
Um, so it is uh, pretty time-consuming. Wow, that's great. And um, let's see, I had a question on the tip of my tongue. What kind of training do you give them about how to evaluate a case? Uh, so we actually um, we take them through all kinds of uh, different trainings. Um, so, you know, we, we're because we're a clinic program, um, every Tuesday and Thursday we have, uh, you know, presentations where the students will present the cases to uh, the staff and the rest of the students. And, you know, we'll go through and kind of uh, discuss as a group uh, the case. But, you know, in, not every week is, is case presentations. We actually fill a lot of time with the training that you're talking about. So uh, we've taken them on trips to, um, to see an autopsy. We'll take them to the gun range so they can see what it's like to shoot a gun, to see how hard, you know, you really have to pull on a trigger. Um, we'll take them to the crime lab. They've been on a tour to the crime lab. They've been to the, uh, the prison this year. Um, we, we typically bring in experts. Last week we had uh, two fingerprint experts came in and, uh, and, and chatted uh, the students up about, you know, what they're looking for when they're doing a fingerprint analysis. Uh, we've had a, uh, a former defense attorney from San Diego that's now a judge come in and talk about uh, DNA. And they're also taking a class called Wrongful Convictions uh, here at the law school uh, that's taught by our director, Justin Brooks. Um, and and that, that class really covers um, all aspects of wrongful convictions, everything uh, from uh, your, you know, ineffective assistance of counsel to, you know, what to look for in an eyewitness identification, a bad eyewitness identification case. Uh, to false confessions, to, I mean, we really just cover absolutely everything that could possibly happen in a case where someone gets wrongfully convicted. Okay, um, Mike, we're going to take a quick break, and it, let me see if I can pronounce your name right. That was Attorney Michael Semanchuk. You got it. Okay, we'll be right back after the break. Thanks. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. California Innocence Project attorney Michael Samanchek was just telling us about the process the students at Cal Western San Diego go through when they're investigating a claim of innocence. So, so you have all this training, Mike, and uh, then you're you're assigning them the case. And so, how do how do they go about identifying claims? Do, are they reading the entire case case and coming up with their questions, or do they have some kind of a format they have to follow or questions they have to answer as they're reviewing it? How does that work? Well, you know, I, you know, kind of like I said before, I like the students to kind of handle their own cases in their own sort of way. I, I'm, I'm a, a hands-off supervisor, but I, you know, kind of the way that I suggest they do it is to go through and read everything that we have in the file. And typically... Um, our cases start with their appellant's opening brief, which gives a good statement of facts from what happened at trial. Um, and, and also in the file is um, a, questionnaire, a questionnaire that the inmate fills out and submits to the project. And um, that usually gives you a pretty good idea as to what, um, what we're going to need uh, if we're going to actually um, overturn the conviction. You know, one, one kind of way to look at it is, um, can we undermine the, impros- the prosecution's entire case? Um, so if the, if the prosecution introduced two witnesses, we'd probably want to go and talk to those two witnesses and see if they're standing by their testimony from trial. Um, but kind of another component to look at is, um, you know, we try to get as, as many police reports as we can um, because the, the investigation that was done at the time of trial can kind of give you an idea as to, you know, was the job that was done a good job by law enforcement, or was it not such a good job? And if mm-hmm. it's maybe not such a good job, then we can do follow-up investigation and talk to witnesses that they maybe didn't find or didn't talk to uh, and see if we can come up with some new evidence. Um, and, of course, we're always looking to see if there's any biological material left uh, in cases like murder cases. Let's say that you know there's a weapon left at the scene or something like that to, so we can do uh, additional DNA testing. Hmm, interesting. So um, are these cases that have had to go all the way through their uh, appellate proceedings before you take them, or yes. do you get I mean, involved we, in the middle? We, you know, we, we require them to, uh, for their conviction to, um, you know, for their, their appeal ha- has to have been denied. Um, and so, yeah, typically by the time the student is working on the case, their direct appeal is over. Um, and we are, you know, basically the, the inmate's last hope. I was just going to say, that's what I always call it, the, the last-ditch hope. So these are all habeas corpus proceedings. Right. Okay. And so, um, but unlike appeals, you can go outside of the trial transcript and right, investigate exactly. everything. Yeah, we actually tell them, you know, our students that, you know, we're typically not uh, doing stuff that's within the record. We're doing stuff outside of the trial record um, to try and undo the conviction. So, you know, yeah, we're we're going out and interviewing witnesses that maybe were never talked to or presenting new evidence, uh, maybe looking at science and 
the science that at the time of trial, maybe it was arson, and we know that arson's changed quite a bit since um, 10, 15, the last 10, 15 years. Um, so if we see that the science has changed, then that's something we can get um, a new expert, uh, you know, somebody today to take a look at the case and say, well, wait a second, you know, the expert that testified at the time of trial, that science has largely, largely been debunked, and that would be something that is outside of the trial record that we can now bring up um, in, a, in a habeas petition. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's true with DNA, too. DNA has, has expanded a lot of course, over the last and, 15 years. Yeah, and it, it's even changed in the last five to six years um, where, you know, the amount that, that's required. You know, in, in 2000, you could get uh, maybe a DNA sample the size of about a quarter, you know, is what, what would be required. And just in the last couple of years, you, you, you actually need something that you can't even see by the naked eye is all that's required to, um, to get a profile. We, we do a lot of uh, touch DNA testing where we're looking at, like, we, we had a case in exoneration in, in, uh, in June where an attorney in our office um, asked for testing on a shirt where um, the perpetrator uh, came in close contact with a, a particular area on, on this female shirt. And it, it came back a male profile, not our client. Um, that, right. isn't, <laughs> that isn't the case you and I were talking about, was it? No, this is okay. a <laughs> okay. case called Uriah Courtney. Okay. The the, uh, the the profile came back not our client, and it came back somebody in the in the DNA database that uh, had some priors, and so you know that's that's a perfect instance of of the yeah. use of new uh, technology and new evidence uh, to undermine a conviction and, and show that uh, a person's innocent. In case our listeners are wondering what I was referring to, I was involved in a case that will be featured at a future show where I was the. Uh, the pre-trial investigator and uh, Johnny Williams was uh, subsequently exonerated after serving prison in prison th- uh, 14 years. So I just didn't want to leave people wondering what I was referring to or <laughs> talking off the air. Um, right. So um, what kind of problems do you have getting the police reports? Uh, it depends on a lot of things. I, I would say it mainly depends on the agency you're dealing with. Um, if we're dealing with San Diego, uh, we have little to no problem at all. In fact, we've got a liaison at the San Diego District Attorney's Office that um, the District Attorney, Bonnie Demonis has uh, appointed to be our liaison, and he's great. Uh, he, If we need something in a case, we shoot him an email or give him a phone call, uh, and he'll make sure that we get the materials. Um, when it comes to some of the other um, uh, police departments, uh, sometimes it's a uphill battle. It really just depends on the officer that's uh, been assigned to your request. Um, you know, I know in L.A., uh, it, it really just depends on who's who's been assigned. Sometimes uh, you might request police reports on a case, and the officer will send them over, no problem. Other times, they'll fight you tooth and nail and require a subpoena or mm-hmm. require you to be um, the attorney appointed on a case. Um, and so, and then, you know, every, every, basically every jurisdiction is going to be different. Um, but, you know, our kind of, our position always is, you know, if you have nothing to hide, if the person you, if you believe the person is truly guilty and you've got nothing, you shouldn't have anything to hide, then send us the police reports and, you know, we'll take a look. And, you know, if that's the case, then we're the Innocence Project. And if we find evidence of guilt, we're going to close it. So, you know, that's For the way sure. we kind of think. Yeah, and so you can't just go in and copy the prosecutor's entire file and keep it simple, huh? 
Not typically. I mean, like I said, San Diego is, is very good about that, and they'll allow us to, you know, they'll give us um, basically anything that we want. Um, I've, I'm, I've been working with a, a detective in Los Angeles for one of my cases uh, that has been um, just great, gave me the entire murder book. Um, for those those listeners that don't know, a murder book is yeah. uh, in L.A. is something that they put together uh, on a case, and it has everything from the case, all of the interviews, all the property reports. It's just got everything that the the, the police department has put together on a specific case. Mm-hmm. Um, some people at LAPD, some detectives are very good uh, about turning that over. They have nothing to hide. They say, this is what I did for my investigation. Take a look. If you find something, great. If you don't, great. You know, let's make sure the right person's in prison. Uh, and that's, you know, kind of our attitude going into it as well. You know, and it and it's sad that that attitude doesn't exist everywhere. I mean, really. I mean, I mean, we think this is about truth and justice, but often it becomes about uh, protecting protecting yourself. Unfortunately, um, right. in your investigation. I mean, um, you know, like you said, we're we're the truth finders. You know, kind of. You know, I think our hope at, at the uh, at the Innocence Project is that. Uh, people don't view us as as defense oriented. They should they should view us as as truth finders or justice seekers. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it and it shouldn't be a battle to the to the bitter end. You know, we should be working <laughs> together to make sure that we we got the right result. And a lot of times, um, you know, there's there's some ego involved and there's some yeah. some, uh, some things going on that you know you wish that. It wasn't uh, a battle over do you meet the standard. It should, it, uh, you know, the standard to overturn a conviction. It should be, oh, if you found some evidence of innocence, then maybe we should work together to make sure that the conviction is correct. Not, well, you're not exactly. going to meet the standard with that small amount of evidence. You know, I, I, I would, one day I really hope that the entire country can kind of shift to um, to view innocence projects as more as justice seekers. So, I love your passion, Mike. It's it's great. I you're clearly in the in the right place so so i mean I, i'm always amazed that when somebody's exonerated that the prosecution will come out and say well it was a technical exoneration <laughs> you know or something like that you know right. uh, well, well t- a lot of times with exonerations too um they kind of hold hold that threat of um retrying the uh, the person that's been released from prison and for 60 days, you're kind of like biting your nails thinking, are they going to actually retry this case or are they just going to let this one go and kind of sweep it under the rug? And more often than not, it's it's the latter. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell us about the Brian Banks case. What happened with that? Uh, so Brian Banks was uh, was a, uh, a, line, a, a all-star linebacker for Long Beach Polytech High School back in 2002. Uh, and he was, uh, he ended up getting, uh, accused of committing a, a rape and kidnap charge on the Long Beach, uh, campus. Um, after a year of, uh, pretrial stuff, he was set to go to trial. They had, uh, just about to pick a jury. And all the while, from the start, they had offered him 40, or the, the, he was looking at 41 years to life. Um, wow. and slowly but surely, as that year went on, the, uh, the plea deal coming from the prosecution went all the way down to the point where um, they were going to make an offer where it was going to be up to the judge to make the call uh, whether to um, to to get to sentence him to probation three years or six years. Uh, and you know, I think the reason why that offer came out was um, because uh, a lot the you know the main the victim in the case uh, had changed her testimony 
six different times had told six different stories between the date of Brian's arrest and the point where, where he's sitting in uh, about to pick a jury. Uh, and so Brian decides, well, instead of facing 41 to life by going to trial, I'll plead guilty to a single count of rape. Uh, at sentencing, the victim's mom showed up, and she was uh, not, uh, you know, she was she was basically took, you know, took the podium and and asked for Brian to get a harsh sentence. And the judge ended up giving Brian the six-year sentence. So he spent five years and two months in prison. Um, and three years after uh, he had been released from prison, he's still on parole, and he got a uh, Facebook friend request from the victim in his case. Um, wow. Yeah, you're thinking, why would the victim of a, uh, you know, a violent crime friend the, uh, their culprit or the yeah. perpetrator um, on Facebook? It's a very strange thing uh, to really wrap your head around. Uh, and so Brian decided uh, to, um, to try and get uh, a meeting with her, sent her a message, um, and asked if they could meet up. And they, they ended up meeting up, and he had uh, a friend of his uh, set up some hidden cameras in an office, and she admitted on camera that she was never raped or kidnapped. Um, but the problem was she wouldn't put it in writing because uh, after Brian had been convicted, the, um, uh, the family had sued the school district for lack of security since it had happened on the, on the school district. Oh, right. And she got um, a settlement. They settled for $1.5 million is what the, it settled for. Uh, and she took a percentage of that and had spent most of it and didn't have it to pay back. And so she was afraid if she signed um, that they would come back knocking, looking for the money, if you know, if she put it in writing that this had never happened. Uh, and so for a couple months, we, um, you know, had we had put together an investigation trying to get her to... Um, to put in writing that, uh, you know, that this had never happened. We had contacted a bunch of her friends that all said that she had admitted close in time to the encounter that it never, it didn't happen the way um, that the police were saying and that, he, that Brian had been convicted. Um, and ultimately what happened uh, was the district attorney in L.A. had taken um, a look at the case and eventually got a chance to sit down with the victim uh, and at the conclusion of uh, of all of their their investigation and us presenting everything to them, they decided to dismiss the charges against Brian. So, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Hang on, I have more questions on that. You're, we need to take a break, though, Mike. You're listening to Mike Samanchek, an attorney with the California Innocence Project. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. 
for a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Mike, before the break, you were talking about the complaining witness on the Brian Banks case. So um, when... When Brian set up this hidden camera, I guess, in this office, uh-huh. was did that was that any kind of a problem? Since um, I guess because it's a it's a crime to make a false statement. What, what, um, how did that work? Was it a problem for her? I mean, you know, so no, the, it, there was a couple problems with the recording. Yes. Um, yeah. So what happened with that? The number one problem for us is that she didn't know that she was being recorded, and so we right. could not, under California law, use that. Um, so, you know, it, it, it was a great uh, tool in getting the ball rolling in terms of negotiating with the L.A. district attorney. But ultimately, you know, it became a discussion of, um, of standards that we would have to meet in court. And uh, we just couldn't win uh, and, and couldn't get him uh, an exoneration uh, if we just had that video. And we knew that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, really, the, the video was just the getting the the ball rolling. It 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 couldn't have been the end of of, of the line. And I, I don't think a lot of people really understood that. You know, a lot of people think that you know once you have the video, you're set. But that's not the way it works in California. So um, we had a huge uphill battle um, to try and come up with additional evidence that um, that she had lied at the time of trial. So okay, and then uh, how long from the time? He had that statement on video to uh, when you actually got in, got it actually nailed down. Um, so uh, the day he had come to us, I think it was March second or third of two thousand eleven, uh, and we filed a habeas petition in his case in uh, August of two thousand eleven. So that's actually our quickest turnaround in terms of a case. Uh, the reason we kind of um, got back into court that quick was because once. Um, Brian would have been off parole. We would not have been able to file a habeas petition because he's out of, you know, he's out of uh, even constructive custody. So we wouldn't have been able to challenge his conviction. Uh, and there was a chance that he could have been uh, terminated from parole. Uh, so we knew we had like a, a bit of a time crunch. So we did what we could to um, put together a habeas, habeas petition in those five months. Uh, we filed it in court, and then. He didn't, uh, the L.A. District Attorney actually um, didn't dismiss the charges until May 24th of 2012. So it was about a year and two months uh, before everything had uh, had finally been dropped. 
I mean, I've just got to say that that's a crazy system right there is that you can't be exonerated after you're off parole. That, I mean, that's right. crazy. Right. <laughs> I mean, he would have, he, he would have had to live with that the rest of his life had he not been exonerated. Right. I mean, and, and there is, you know, um, there is another kind of way. It's a, a, a petition for Aram Corb Nobis um, uh-huh. that, that people have used. But it's by and large just not, uh, you know, it's not as, as well known and not as, as widely used as something like a habeas petition. And so we knew that the chances were slim we'd ever get back in court on error quorum nobis. And so, you know, really truthfully, that, you know, if he would, been, he would have been taken off a of parole, um, then it would have been extremely difficult to ever overturn his conviction. Now, did... So when when the prosecution went back and talked to her, she she did admit that she had lied. Uh, yeah, yeah, more or less. I mean, she admitted uh, that she was not raped, that it was a consensual uh, encounter, uh, that she was not kidnapped. You know, originally the story was that she had been dragged into an elevator, pushed down a hallway, or pulled down a hallway, uh, and kind of you, you get this picture in your head that it's like kicking and screaming, getting getting pulled down this hallway and what sounded like a, a building that shouldn't have had many people in it. But uh, our investigation showed that there were two classrooms that they would have had to go by, and um, both classrooms had doors that were open, and they were full of uh, adult students and teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, to us, was uh, kind of clue number one. Like, if you're getting dragged down a hallway, certainly someone in the classroom would have known someone, or heard or seen. Yeah, someone would notice, maybe. Right. And that, that just didn't happen. And so, yeah. you know, for us, you know, yes, the video was powerful, but kind of doing our investigation, we're thinking, okay, that you know, this is definitely not adding up. And then we kind of charted out all of her six statements, and, you know, it just started piling up and falling apart. Um, so that, combined with... Uh, their ability to sit down and, and, and chat with her. And, um, you know, we, we like to have um, an open book policy. So if the prosecution wants anything from our office, we don't play hide the ball. Uh, mm-hmm. And that included if they wanted to chat, sit down and chat with Brian, which um, they had some questions for him as well. And we are sure. not, we didn't hold, the, hold back Brian from, uh, from them. And so that's kind of the way we, we work. Like I said, you know, we're about... Uh, finding the truth in cases, and if that means that they want to see everything we got, then by by all means have it, and we would hope Absolutely. they would do it for us. So. Absolutely. And what happened to her settlement? Anything? Uh, I know that the school district ended up uh, filing suit to get you know suing her back for the money, uh, and I I I don't know if I know they got a default judgment against her. Um, but I, you know, I don't think that they were ever able to find her, um, and I can't imagine uh, that they'll ever see any of the money back because it's my understanding that it had already been spent. So, wow, that's amazing. So you have a, another case too, uh, Reggie Cole. Yeah, Reggie uh, was a 2010 uh, exoneration. He is a very interesting story. He had been convicted of. A murder uh, back in 19, I want to say 94, 95. Uh, it's an L.A. case. Um, and the interesting thing about Reggie's case is that we probably never would have been able to uh, get an exoneration, but for the fact that at the time the detective was uh, investigating the case, there was a journalist that was um, following Reg, or, uh, following the detective and, and documenting um uh, the the entire investigation in a book, uh, huh. and so uh, we worked with an attorney, now a judge, a guy named Christopher Plord, uh, who uh, 
Mr. Plord was, uh, Judge Plord was uh, actually representing Reggie on another case that he was facing in, while he was in prison. Um, and he started looking into his underlying convictions and found some stuff that didn't add up. And so he uh, contacting, contacted our office, and we worked together with him to uh, and, and found that book, and then able, were able to show that, uh, that he did not commit the murder that he was in prison on. Um, so step one in that case was uh, getting his underlying conviction tossed. Um, but he, while he was in prison, uh, actually was uh, about to get attacked by a, another inmate. Uh, and he ended up getting in a fight and killing a guy while he was in prison and ended up pleading to a uh, manslaughter charge. Uh, so the kind of the crazy thing is that, that we argued was had, had he never been wrongfully convicted in the first place, he never would have been in the situation where this inmate would have come after him and tried to kill him, and then he um, you know, would have to defend himself. Right, uh, but he ended up getting uh, getting out in 2010, and he's now uh, living in LA. He's actually going to go along with Brian uh, and a number of other uh, our other exonerees up to uh, the uh, to Sacramento next Friday. We're doing uh, the last mile of the Innocence March all over again, uh, and we're encouraging uh, Governor Brown to grant clemency for the California 12. Uh, and, and Reggie's going to come along, along with a number of other exonerees. I think the total amount of years uh, for all the exonerees attending is, is going to be close to 100 years that they each have, has, have spent uh, you know, com- cumulatively in prison uh, for crimes they didn't commit. And so we're hoping uh, by going up there and, 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 and you know, having exonerees speak and the family members of the 12 speak that maybe we can um, you know, encourage Governor Brown to grant clemency for the 12. Well, Mike, give, give the details of that march. Where, where is it going to start? What time? Uh, maybe people that are listening would like to join it. Definitely. So we're going to start at Rayleigh Field, which is okay. the minor league baseball stadium up in Sacramento. It's a, a little over a mile from the Capitol steps. And we'll, we'll meet there at uh, 12 noon on December 20th. And we're going to walk uh, straight up to the West Capitol steps where, uh, you know, families and, and supporters of the California 12 will be in, uh, walking with us. And when we get there, we're going to uh, uh, speak on the steps with some of the family members. We're hoping that a couple of uh, congressmen in, uh, in, 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 the California, in, the, in the state capitol will come out and speak and address uh, issues with wrongful convictions and talk about how people get wrongfully convicted. Um, back in June, I know you talked about this at the beginning, but... Uh, myself as well as uh, Justin Brooks and Alyssa Bierkel. Uh, Justin's our director and Alyssa's a staff attorney here. We walked from, from here in San Diego all the way to Sacramento. It was 712 miles. And how, long, how far is it? 700 and what? 712. So. But who's counting, right? Yeah, who's counting? So we, uh, wow. We how, long us, did, how long did that take you? Yeah, it took us 51 days. And actually, we got there four days early. We, uh, we kind of moved ahead of schedule. Uh, which was uh, which was awesome. It was great that we were able to even keep a schedule. Yeah. Uh, so we got there. We delivered the uh, twelve uh, petitions uh, and presented all twelve cases actually to the governor's staff, which is really ultimately what we were hoping to do. You know, in in um, kind of the way the system, the clemency uh, petitions work is typically people just send in clemency petitions. Um, and hope that the governor might take a look at them. When we got up there, uh, we were very happy to to get the present get the opportunity to present to the the governor's staff, uh, and they let us know that when they took office, um, 
Governor Schwarzenegger, I guess, had had not really considered too many clemency petitions. In fact, he had a room full of them just kind of piled up sitting there. Wow. Uh, so we were happy that um, R12, you know, we presented them, like I said, you know, giving them kind of the open book. We gave them, we've given them everything, and um, they're, you know, I know that they're, uh, reviewing the cases, and we're happy that they are reviewing them. We hope that um, that the governor uh, ends up doing something about it. He's uh, he's uh, typically grants clemency on Christmas and Easter every year, and so mm-hmm. we're hoping that uh, some of the twelve will make his Christmas list, and hopefully they can spend the holidays at home this year. Well, wouldn't that be fabulous? Yeah. yeah. Great. Uh, so do you expect anything to happen on the 20th specifically other than you're going to have this big event? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure uh, that anything will happen in terms of like the governor coming out and agreeing to grant clemency or anything like that. Yeah. You know, I can just tell you that, I, that you know, they've been uh, reviewing the cases and we're happy that they're at least reviewing them, not sitting in a room up there. Um, we're hopeful that you know, that they're taking it seriously, and I think they are. Um, and we're hopeful that, you know, that they, they will grant clemency. I don't, I can't say whether or not they will on the 20th. I, I certainly hope so. Um, uh, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see till next Friday. Okay. Another break, Mike. More to come with Innocence Project Attorney Mike Semenchik. We'll be right back. News, opinion, action. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. 
Today we're talking about exonerating the innocent in our part two, uh, the gift of exoneration series with Mike Samanchek from the California Innocence Project in San Diego. And Mike, I know we don't have much time left, but I, I, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the reasons for wrongful convictions. Sure. Um, so, you know, the leading cause of wrongful convictions is uh, eyewitness identifications. And, and you can see why that would be if you just think about it for a second. You've got a person that's coming in uh, in front of a jury, and they're pointing at the defendant saying, that's the guy, that's 100% the guy. So that's very powerful evidence. Um, but if you, took, if you take a look at the underlying science of identifying people, uh, we now know that we are terrible at remembering details on, on who we actually saw, especially if it's someone we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and even more so if it's a case where there's, uh, uh, if, the, if the witness and the person that they're identifying are of different races, uh, cross-racial identifications are actually some of the worst. Uh, and what compounds that even more is that, you know, one study has come out and said that the more certain a person is that they're right about an identification, the mm-hmm. more likely they're wrong. Um, and so... You might have a witness get up there and say, I'm 100% or I'm 200% sure that that's the guy. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, that, that very well couldn't, that might not be the person. And so that's the, the leading cause of wrongful convictions. And I think, um, you know, the changes in science and DNA have, have done an awesome job showing that, uh, you know, we just can't, we don't have a memory like a video camera like people uh, want to believe. We, we just don't. Uh, remember faces, and we're very uh, susceptible to suggestibility. So you put a picture in front of somebody and say, does this look like the suspect? If it looks similar, they might take that image of the, uh, of the picture and transplant that into the, uh, the memory that they have of the crime being committed, and the next thing you know, they start to believe that the picture is the person. You know, that's the face right. that they remember. Uh, and it's just something as simple as that, that next thing you know, they're testifying at trial, and a person gets convicted um, when they weren't even there. So eyewitness identification is something that we're definitely looking for. Uh, a good number of the, um, you know, the 1,800 wrongful convictions in the United States involve false confessions. People, um, strangely enough, they confess to things uh, that they didn't do. And, yeah. you know, a, a lot of the cases involve, uh, you know, uh, children that are interviewed for long periods of time or younger, you know, maybe 16-, 17-year-old uh, kids. Um, and, but it's also adults with uh, even lower IQs. Um, but people are uh, susceptible to, to suggestibility by uh, police officers doing an interrogation. And they also think that, you know, oftentimes an officer might tell them, like, hey, you know, if you just tell me that, tell me that you did it, you'll get out of here sooner kind of thing. Right. We'll, we'll right. do, you some, uh, do you some favors and make sure they go easy on you. Uh, and, and people start to believe, like, okay, I'm never getting out of here, so I might as well just admit to it. Uh, so we see false confessions a decent amount of the time. Uh, we also um, get a, no- a number of cases where, you know, there's just ineffective assistance of counsel at the trial level. So the attorney just did, didn't do a proper investigation, didn't come up with the witnesses they, witnesses they should have, um, maybe didn't call an expert to explain a science properly. Uh, so IAC claims are definitely something we see. Uh, bite mark evidence is uh, a, a science that's uh, been largely debunked. So we're looking at a lot of different scientific fields, but, you know, bite mark is one that if we see a bite mark case, um, you know, it's something that we should uh, definitely take another look at because, uh, you know, we know now that the science behind bite mark evidence has been largely debunked. 
We do see some uh, police and prosecutorial misconduct cases, you know, whether it's uh, like police have uh, uh, some exonerating evidence that maybe they hide or, you know, maybe they, um, you know, offer up money to witnesses without ever disclosing that to the defense. So a witness might get paid for his testimony, and really they just th- they just want the $100 so they can go and, you know, live their life because they're, maybe they're living on the street or something. And we don't ever see evidence of that in the trial file. Later we uncover that. Um, you know, so there's a lot of different things that we're looking at when it comes to uh, uh, taking another look at a case. Uh, and those, uh, you know, that's kind of just the tip of the iceberg, you know. Um, uh, what about prosecutor- prosecutorial misconduct? Definitely. Do you run into uh, that very yeah, often? We've, we've got, you know, we've had a, a few cases where you look and maybe there's, um, you know, now we've, we, I think most uh, prosecutorial uh, offices now, you know, like L.A. has a, a Brady uh, review process. Uh, so, if you know, if evidence... You know, the law says that if there's evidence that uh, that's, you know, good for the defendant, uh, the prosecution must turn it over. I mean, that's yeah, basically can, the, the, can you explain what just, Brady is, Mike? Uh, yeah, it's a case, Brady versus Maryland is a case uh, that basically instructs that. It says that, you know, you have to turn over evidence, uh, exonerating evidence. Uh, and that's been on the books for quite some time. Now, um, it says known or, or knew or should have known about uh, the evidence. So, you know, that kind of... You know, and one thing that we're always kind of looking at, and I, I, I truthfully, I believe that um, prosecutors, 99.9% of prosecutors are, um, you know, are doing the right thing, and they, and they, and you know, for the most part, they are. We occasionally find that one bad apple that maybe uh, had some evidence of, uh, uh, of, of some innocence, you know, for the defendant, and they didn't turn it over. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, those cases are, are older. Um, you know, we're looking at one case uh, from 1980 uh, in Ventura that uh, possibly could involve some prosecutorial misconduct. That I, you know, I don't want to really go too much into detail sure. about it. But, um, you know, it's it's a you know you're looking at these cases and you hope that the prosecution turned over everything. But you know, there's been cases where we've gone and taken a look at the um, the file, the prosecution or the police file, and in it will be a folder that says "Don't show to defense," and that <laughs> is just sends chills down my spine. Right. You know, you open that envelope, and there in in lies like a videotape of the the real perpetrator, and you're like, "Oh wow, what's going yeah. on?" Yeah. But when you oh. see, and I've seen it, I've actually seen a a, a a Manila envelope that says "Don't show to defense." That's a scary time, you know. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. And what about uh, forensic science, like uh, uh, misstating statistics and uh, maybe contamination at the lab or things like that? In 2009, the National Academy of Sciences came out with a report that um, that basically uh, challenged a lot of the forensic science work that was going on in the country. Uh, everything from uh, autopsies that were done by elected officials in small uh, lo- localities. To uh, like I was talking about earlier, bite mark evidence, where you've got um, a 2D picture of a bite mark, and they're comparing that to a 3D mold of somebody's teeth, oh, wow. and all the while you've got to consider the fact that the skin's pliable, um, that people bruise differently, um, and and you know it's it's just basically you're taking somebody's uh, subjective opinion, comparing the 3D mold and the 2D image, and trying to figure out if this is the right person. <laughs> Yeah. Where now at least we've got DNA evidence, where you can just take exactly. a swab of where the bite mark is, and we can 
more more than likely come up with some saliva and figure out, you know, by a virtual certainty that it is or isn't the person. So, you know, bite mark is 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 uh, not a very good science to rely on. Um, you know, fingerprint analysis. I was telling you guys earlier that we had a fingerprint experts come in uh, and talk. Uh, there was a, a 2004 Madrid train bombing case uh, yes. involving a guy, a defendant yeah. by the name of Brandon Mayfield, and they had actually, uh, the FBI had called it uh, a fingerprint match on an uh, unexploded uh, uh, device found on one of the train cars. They, found, they yeah. matched to Brandon Mayfield. Well, the Spanish police took a look at it and said, ah, we're not so sure, and they continued to do their investigation until they found the true perpetrator, who was not Brandon Mayfield. So um, we know that, you know, fingerprints are not foolproof. And, yeah. uh, again, it's, it's relying on uh, a human, and humans make mistakes. Uh, and in that case, you know, the, the analysts from the FBI made a mistake. You know, our best police agency in the country um, made a mistake on a, on a fingerprint and almost uh, ended up taking Brandon Mayfield to trial and trying to convict him of uh, the Spanish train bombing. So Yeah. I know, it's amazing, Mike. And you know what? We're at the end of our hour and we have to close the show. Uh, but thank you so much. You have been a, just a, a delightful guest and you've provided so much information. Please give your website, uh, so, uh, sure. people can know how to contact you. Yeah, for more information, uh, on our cases and the issues we face, go to CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org. And you can also, uh, you'll see in the, on the website in the top right, there's an, uh, the opportunity to uh, send us a donation. Um, without everybody's support, we wouldn't be able to um, investigate the cases and send our students out to the prisons and into the exactly. communities uh, to do the investigations to uh, find these uh, innocence cases. So Exactly. Thank you so much. So, uh, again, uh, tune in next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators and from people like Mike, who works with the Innocence Project. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Mike. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.